Good morning, everyone. For those who do not know me, my name is Tom Sylvia. I am the associate pastor here. And normally it is Pastor John who speaks before us and share God's word. But occasionally I have the opportunity to share his word from the pulpit. And I am very thankful that I have that. I can, I'm going to speak for John and myself and we can, when I say that we don't take this task lightly because we both know who we are speaking before. One, Jesus is here. And two, the bride of Christ is here. So, thank you. If you've been with us for any length of time, we are going currently through the book of Mark, so I'm going to ask for you to go ahead and get your Bible out and turn to Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. That's Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. If you do not have a Bible, then there should be one in the seat back in front of you or behind you if you're on the front row, and we'll be on page 1003. 1003. And with our tradition here at East Shore, we're going to stand, and if you're able, please stand with me as I read from the ESV. So that is, one more time, Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 22 through 26, or page 1003. Let's read. And they came to Bethsaida, and some of the people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he said to and he sent him home to and he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. You may be seated. Let me pray. Father, you are wonderful. You are here. The heavens are trembling at the sight of your glory, Lord. Help us to tremble at the sight of your glory, your grace, your mercy, your goodness, your salvation at your presence, your, just how majestic you are. Help us to recognize who you are this morning. And may we, Lord, just simply delight in you because you are love, because you are good, because you are creator. Lord, humble each and every one of us. Humble me so that we can hear your word and that I can teach your word. This is your time. We give it to you. We need you. Help us, Lord, to see this text clearly, to see your word clearly, and to see your son, Jesus Christ, clearly. Help us all to believe. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So we have a lot to cover, so we're going to just jump right on in. And 
I can venture to say most of us in this room have read this story at some point in our lives, and if you've discussed this story with anyone, you probably have asked the question, or it was asked in your group, why in the world did it take two times for Jesus to heal this man? We know why it's taken Josh Wines multiple times to get healed for his sight, but why is Jesus having to take two times for this blind man to see? Was Jesus not powerful enough? Did he make a mistake the first time? Was this man's sin, was the power over this man that great that it took two? These are valid questions. I mean, it seems from just reading upon it that the first time was not good enough. But why? Why the second attempt? Well, I'm going to tell you right now at the outset, it has nothing to do with the fact that Jesus didn't have the power to heal this man nor that he had made some kind of mistake the first time. Jesus was, is, fully God. He could have healed this man in any infinite number of ways, and he could have done it many times over. He intentionally healed this man twice. So the question instead to ask is, what is Jesus showing us about himself? And I'm going to contend and put before you that Jesus had two attempts because he was pointing us out to the fact that he is the Messiah, the Savior, that he is the one filling all the Old Testament scriptures and that he has come to make known and make clear all the types and shadows of the Old Testament. The scriptures are designed as progressive from Genesis to Revelation. All Scripture have their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All Scripture points us to and leads us to Jesus Christ. All Scripture is about Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus and He taught two men the Scriptures, what, what took place here? What did Jesus say? Let me read some. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses, the book of Genesis, and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. The Old Testament was pointing towards Christ. Luke goes on just a few verses later when Jesus appears to his disciples in verses 44 and 46 of the same chapter. Let me read it. Verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Where's that written in the Old Testament? It's not. He's saying that's the point of the Old Testament. The disciples did not at first understand the complete pictures of the scriptures. Their hermeneutic was flawed and they were missing the grand narrative of scripture, which is that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. 
perhaps you might have heard this quote before. It comes from Augustine. He says, the new is in the old concealed. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. The new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. To put it in terms of the passage before us today, the Old Testament is like seeing walking trees. But then Jesus has come along, and now everything is clearly seen. They're not just walking trees. They're people. This is what this miracle of the healing is all about. That Jesus Christ has come to open up our eyes to the Scriptures, to Himself. That He is the Messiah, the Christ. That Him, being the Son of God, has come in the flesh to save sinners. Pastor Tom Are you sure you're not allegorizing or over-spiritualizing this text? I'm not. Before we dive into the text to show that this is what Mark is intending, let me just read to you a quote from Danny Aiken, uh, the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He says, These verses constitute a visual parable that though historically true, also symbolize the spiritual pilgrimage of the disciples. It is meant to portray the gradual step-by-step understanding of the disciples. So Danny Aiken is agreeing with me. But more importantly, let's let the text speak for itself. And to do this, we're going to look at the surrounding context, the immediate context, the book as a whole, and then we'll see that even the Scriptures do this. So the surrounding context, Mark chapter 6 through 8, this is the surrounding context of where we're at. And in this context, there are two sets of six events that parallel each other that help us bring about this point. Six events, two times. I'm going to show you them, so stay with me. We're going to travel a lot of ground here today. The first set of events takes place in chapter 6 and 7, and and it begins with the feeding of the 5,000. The first event, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, is the first story of Jesus feeding the multitude with five loaves of bread and two fish. This is a massive, massive miracle that was witnessed by thousands. And honestly, I'm just going to give a shout out to the TV show, The Chosen. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. They actually portray this miracle. They do a good job. And you can just see in that show how everyone is just going crazy. That, oh my goodness, there's all this fish. Disciples are overjoyed because of what just happened. It's wonderful. The bread of life was making bread right there before him. What event followed this feeding? Event number two. The disciples cross the sea and they get stuck in the great storm at the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus comes to them by walking on water. A couple of things I want to point out about this particular story. First, we know that uh, in Matt, because of Matthew's account, that it is Simon, when, this is when Simon walks on the water to go to Jesus. And Jesus, in this very text, declares himself to be God. In verse 50, it says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. That phrase, it is I, is literally, in the Greek says, it is I am. Jesus is saying, I am in this miracle. 
He's alluding to say, I am, which is the great I am before Moses in the burning bush. In Isaiah 40 through 45, I am he. Jesus declares himself to be Yahweh. Notice in verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They did not understand. Mark pays special attention to this fact. Event number three, Jesus has a, has a confrontation with the Pharisees about traditions. And after the confrontation, he speaks to the disciples and notice what he says in verse 18 of chapter 7. Then you also are without understanding. Do you not see? Event number four. From this, we move on to this Syrophoenician woman who was having a conversation with Jesus about bread. Event number five. Jesus heals a deaf man that was brought to him. Jesus took the man to the side. He spit and touched the man's ears and tongue, and he was healed. Event number six, a declaration, the finality of this series of six, a declaration is made in verse 37. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. That's the first series of six events. Now let's look at the second series of six events that parallel these. Immediately following verse seven, what, what takes place next? Another feeding of a multitude. The feeding of 4,000. And look again. The disciples are confused in verse 4. It's, it's like they've never been in this situation before. Where are we going to get all this food? All the fish and bread for this crowd? It's like deja vu. And I want you to also notice that in this second feeding of the 4,000, Mark highlights that it's also a desolate place. Well, what happens with event number two, verse 10? The disciples and Jesus get into another boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. Event number three, another confrontation takes place with the Pharisees and Jesus in verses 11 through 13. Event four, immediately following event three, we have yet another conversation about bread. Then Jesus, after this conversation about bread, what does Jesus accuse the disciples of? Verse 21, do you not yet understand? Are we starting to see some uh, symmetry here? Why don't they understand? I mean, the, the elders were reading a book for our, el- or for our elder meetings, and one of the authors calls the disciples the duh disciples. They should be getting the point at, by this point. Event five, this is where we are. This is our story. Event five, another healing. A man is brought to Jesus. Jesus takes him away from the crowd, spits, touches his eyes, and is healed. Symmetry. Then event number six, a confession. And Pastor John will speak on this next week. Verse 29, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are are the Christ. He understands. At first, the first set of events, it was Jesus declaring himself to be God before Peter. The second sets of events, he understands, and now it is Peter declaring Jesus to be God. 
He understands. He sees clearly. Do you see the progressive nature of the disciples' understanding taking place in these few chapters? The first set of events, they had no understanding. And then a series of similar events unfold, and wow, they see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's how this section fits into its surrounding context, but notice the immediate context also proves this point. Pastor John has uh, mentioned in the past, I'm, sh- I'm, I'm, I'm going to say he coined the term. I don't think it was him, but I just want to tell, him, tell us it's him. He says it's called a Mark Sandwich. A Mark sandwich. And this is where Mark gives, uh, speaks to a given topic and then switches to a new story and then goes back to the previous topic or story. And it's all about the same point. The story in the middle is like the meat and the condiments and elaborates on the, the bread, the point that holds it together, if you will. Our story is in the middle of a Mark sandwich. The disciples are not understanding in the immediate verses of 14 through 21. Then a two-part healing occurs about a man who slowly begins to see in verses 22 through 26. Then we return back to the disciples, and now they understand a Mark sandwich. You're starting to see the point of this miracle. In fact, this is the turning point in the whole book of Mark itself. Because after this, what happens after this story? Well, Jesus proclaims him to be the Christ. But what else happened? Now Jesus begins to tell the disciples about his death, burial, and resurrection. He mentions it three times in the second half. He doesn't mention it at all previously. Now we're about to go with Jesus on top of the mountain where he transfigures before the disciples. He says, look at my glory. Takes place now. And Jesus dies in the end. There's a progressive nature to Mark's gospel. The first half of the book, the book, the structure of the book as a whole, we're faintly able to see who Jesus is. And by the end, we understand. You know, it's common for uh, Jesus to heal. And then after the healing, Jesus will say, Please, don't, 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 don't tell anyone. He does this wonderful miracle, and he says, don't, don't say anything to anyone. Okay? This is what scholars in, in the theological realm is called the messianic secret. Why is Jesus telling everyone not to share this good news or spread this message after the healing? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because the people don't yet fully know who Jesus is. If they go about spreading this news, they'll not be spreading the news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. His core identity, what his chief mission was to come and save, they will be spreading the news that Jesus is a great prophet, a miracle worker that heals the sick, and he is more than a prophet. He wants the message of healing to be proclaimed. He absolutely does but he desires more for the message of salvation to be proclaimed. And it was not yet time to proclaim the gospel because Jesus had not yet died. The people simply did not have enough clarity to see or to proclaim the gospel message yet. And the book of Mark starts out with a declaration that Jesus is God in the very first verse. 
in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Clearly, Mark wants us to know at the outset, Jesus is God. But how do we get there? Well, he's going to help us progressively understand and see, wow, Jesus really is God. And all these characters are missing it all the way up until the very end. Everyone gets it. That's Mark's point. He ends at the very end of the letter. There's another proclamation. And this time, it's by a Gentile in Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him, Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, this centurion, Roman Gentile centurion, said, truly, this man was the Son of God. It's clear who this man was. I'll quote Larry Hurtado. In Mark's view, no one could understand the true meaning of Jesus and his work until Jesus had actually completed it by his death as a ransom for others. There's a progressive revealing that takes place in Mark's gospel, and we get to see it through the eyes of the disciples. However, we got to go back to our original point. This miracle goes beyond the scope of the book of Mark and speaks to the whole of Scripture. What view of the Messiah did the disciples have? A Jewish view of the Messiah. What was that view? It was this idea that there was going to be a Savior. He was going to come with a mighty sword and free them from the Roman oppression. Salvation. Israel reclaimed their throne and their mighty deeds and their might, as a mighty nation before all. That was the Jewish understanding. And that is an incorrect view. Their hermeneutic was deeply flawed. So, Jesus needs to fix that hermeneutic. Why does Mark write his gospel using a literary technique that progressively reveals that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Because he's mimicking the Scriptures. That's what the Old Testament does. Mark learns his literary technique from the Scriptures themselves. What is the purpose of the Old Testament? But to show us Jesus Christ. Pastor John preached through the book of Hebrews two series ago. And one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews is that the Old Testament is full of types or shadows. What is a type? Well, we get the word type from the Greek word tupas, which is the same word that disciple Thomas used whenever he said, I want to see the, the nail marks in your hands, Jesus. Those marks, that's the word type. He wants to see the impression left by the nail themselves. Have you ever done one of those hand casting kits? You buy it, comes in a bucket, and you do this, and you stick your fingers in there, your hands in there, shape them however you want to be, and then you pull it out. You pour a mold liquid in, it fills the cavity that your hands made, and then it dries, you carve it all out, and what do you have? A little clay picture that exemplified what your hands looked like when you put them in there. It imaged your hands, okay? The cast is but an image of the hands. It looks like your hands, but it's not in any way your hand. Your hands are the substance. The cast was but an image. That's a type. 
That's a type. And we learn from the Scriptures that the Old Testament is full of types that point us to the substance, which is Christ. Hebrews 10.1, we just read it as a, as a church. I'll read it again. For since the law was but a shadow, a type of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, you already see type, substance, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. What was the perfect of the Mosaic law? Why did Israel have all the sacrificial ordinances? They couldn't heal them. It was just but an image of what could. So they had no power in of themselves. The answer to point them and us to the ultimate sacrifice. The Lamb of God who was going to be slain for the sins of the whole world. Paul also affirms typology, that is the study of types, in Colossians 2, 16-17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow, a type of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. In the Old Testament, there were different festivals the Israelites had to observe. They were commanded to. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, Pentecost, Purim, just to name a few. There's more. Why? Why were they instituted by God? Why was it given to Israel? Answer, to point them, to show them the coming Christ, the substance of the festivals they were but shadows of christ have you ever been asked why as believers we don't hold to the levitical laws in leviticus numbers and deuteronomy why don't we do those jewish practices anymore well there's a simple answer to that question it's because those practices were under the old covenant which was a shadow a type that pointed us to the coming new covenant. As New Testament, testament being the English word synonymous with the word covenant, New Testament, new covenant. As New Testament Christians, we don't practice shadows and types. We don't do that. That's the old covenant. We practice and worship the substance, the new covenant, Jesus Christ. We don't go back to the old. We're in the new John, the Apostle John, he affirms typology. Read with me in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. The commandment isn't new. It's not new because the commandment's in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So then how is it new? Notice those words of Jesus, as I have loved you. We now have an example, a clear revelation as to how to fully obey the Old Testament command to love your neighbor as yourself. It was a shadow and Jesus has come to make that clear. Ligon Duncan, 
It is new in that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, has shown us what it is to love and has, on the basis of that revelation of love, called us to love. No man has ever loved as Jesus. When we read the Scripture starting in Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22, we are being guided by a progressive revelation that when Jesus comes, He makes all things clear. We were once blind, we were, but when God came and revealed Himself through history and prior to Christ, the saints in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, they were able to see, but they could only see dimly. It was like they were looking at images that looked like trees. But now Jesus has come and has opened their eyes, our eyes, and we can see clearly. We don't see walking trees. We see people. So, now that we understand that the point of this miracle, uh, what do we do with this information? How do we apply this information to our lives? How does this impact us? I'm going to give you two points of application. First point is we are to enjoy the Old Testament. We are to enjoy the Old Testament. We are New Testament Christians, but that does, that does not mean we limit our study to the New Testament. How were the disciples instructing the first churches before the New Testament was complete? Through the Old Testament. Old Testament scriptures. Approximately 77% of our Bible consists of the Old Testament. That's important. What does Paul say to Timothy? 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. By the words, all scriptures, he's referring to the whole Old Testament, including Leviticus. Paul is saying that every word in Leviticus is profitable, useful for us. But how do we read it? How do we read it? Just as the man who was healed in our story, how does he interpret reality? This blind man that was healed, how does he interpret reality going forward? Does he, does he interpret life like he was when he was partially blind? Like, oh, those are, those are trees walking around. Then he goes around living like, I know those were walking trees. They're people right now, but they're really walking trees. No. Now that he sees clearly, he looks back at the walking trees and says, those were people. He uses his clear eyesight to tell him what he really saw. As New Testament Christians, how do we read the Old Testament? Do we read the Old Testament blindly? No. We read the Old Testament in light of Christ. Jesus has opened up. He's come to reveal the Scriptures. So we go back and we read with Jesus at the forefront of our minds, enlightening the text as new covenant believers. We use the lens of Christ to help illuminate the rich stories and meanings that are present. Let me give you an example I'm telling you to do this, but I need to give you an example. I'm going to give you the example from the story of Jonah. We know when reading the book of Jonah that he was a prophet that God called to go proclaim the good news, this upcoming judgment to the people of Nineveh. What did Jonah do? <laughs> he ran away. He hated the Ninevites. 
you want me to do that, God? Great, I'm going to obey by going the other way. He gets on a boat, goes to the opposite direction, and then God sends a massive storm. And everybody on the boat is fright, frightened. They start resorting, running to all the possible gods they can think of. So saying, help me, help me. I just think of the, the story in the movie, The Mummy, where this guy, one of the characters in the movie, The Mummy's, the mummy's coming towards him, and he has all these necklaces about every religion in the world, and he's backing up, and he's throwing each necklace at the mummy, and none of them are working. That's what these men are doing on the boat. Nothing they have, no relic is working. Then they see this one man, Jonah. What's this man Jonah doing? He's going to sleep. They're all about to die, and he's sleeping. Well, Jonah says, I'm the reason for this storm. Throw me overboard. The men reluctantly do that, and they, all the men believe because they see that God can calm the seas. Then what happens to Jonah? He's swallowed by a great fish. Whatever it is, I don't know. I just like to think it's a megalodon. He was carried all through the deep parts of the Mediterranean Sea, the Atlantic Ocean, for three days and three nights. Afterwards, this great fish spit him up on dry land in verse 210. Verse 210. What happened next? He finally obeys the Lord and takes the message of, of the coming judgment to Nineveh, where the whole city repents in verses 7 through 10 of the third chapter. What do we do with this story? Well, without the knowledge of the New Testament, without Christ, we can clearly see that God is merciful. We can clearly see that God extends His grace to whom He wants to extend His grace. We learn that God is sovereign. We learn that it is a not a good thing to run away from God's calling on our lives. There's some other things, but you get my point. However, when we add New Testament light, when we put on the lens of Christ, we learn a lot more. We learn a lot more is going on here. It's, we see that Jonah is a type, a shadow, and Jesus is the substance. It's not a true one-to-one -one correlation because Jonah is nothing compared to the greatness of our Savior but regardless, our Savior used Jonah to bring about glimpses of what we need to expect from the Messiah. Let me read from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Can you guess how Jonah is a type? Jonah spent three nights in the body of a great fish. So Jesus must die and remain in the grave for three days and three nights. Jonah's event, that text, foreshadowed Jesus' death. Do you, do you notice that the, God commanded the great fish to spit Jonah up on dry land? Dry land. Why? Have you ever thought about that statement, dry land? Guys, go to Cape May. 
and you go to the beach and you tell me how a great fish can spit a man on dry land from the ocean. He can't. It, the whole thing is a miracle. Why dry land? Why not partially in the water? Because it's a type. The seas are a type. They're a shadow of death. The substance is death. So just as Jesus conquered death totally, so was Moses landing on dry ground totally. It's not wet in any way. Jesus didn't barely conquer the grave. He totally conquered the grave. There's no chance of death getting back its sting. That stinger has been removed. There's no more evil and death for those who are in Christ. It is conquered. Let me read this one of my favorite quotes from William McEwen, a Scottish pastor from the 18th century. The fish that swallowed Jonah might, for aught we know, receive as little harm by the prophet as the prophet by the fish. But, oh, grace, he was your destruction. <laughs> this hungry monster had gorged all the race of Adam and never said, it is enough. Death was never had enough men. Never any descended into the grave that it could not digest till Jesus Christ died and was buried. <laughs> the grandeur. This grand devourer snatched the bait of Jesus' human body, but was not aware of the hook of his divine nature and was forced to surrender her prey, having received such a deadly wound as shall never be healed. <laughs> Goodbye, death. After the fish, what do we learn? Jonah gets up and preaches the gospel. The Gentiles believed. The message, the gospel, was never meant for just the Jews. It was meant for the whole world. What is happening in the book of Acts? The Gentiles are repenting of their sins and believing. Jonah, he, his book foreshadowed these events. Do you see how we can read the Old Testament with new lenses? We can enjoy a rich and deeper story. The, do you see how we can see that Jesus has come and how we can read the Old Testament saying that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament? We can see the expanse of his work and his person. We have clear eyes. Do you see? Do you understand? There's a whole ocean to explore in the Scriptures. And before, all they had were boats to sail the ocean far and wide. But now we have submarines and scuba gear. We can dive and mine the depths of the Scriptures. Enjoy them. Enjoy them. Get lost in your enjoyment of the Scriptures. I would love to give more examples of types and shadows, but we've got to move on to my second point of application from this story. And that is we must experience the fullness of grace. Experience the fullness of grace. The Old Covenant or the Old Testament consists of various covenants. Covenants are promises from God to man. And they were all covenants of works. What do I mean by this? I'm essentially saying that God was making conditional promises to it with Israel. That is, if 
Israel obeyed, then they would have the blessing promised. Specifically, they would have the abundant life in the land of Canaan. If they obeyed, God made this promise, this covenant with Israel. The bless, this blessing was life in the land, dependent on obedience, dependent on works. Deuteronomy 30:19. I call heaven and earth to bear witness against you today that I, God, have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. These covenants were works-based promises of God given in the law of Moses that if obeyed, if their works fulfilled these conditions, they would be justified to have these promises. Okay? That's, that's what this Old Testament consists of. Adam. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What were they to do? God said, if you obey, you will live. Promise of life. Conditional upon the if, the works. What happened to Adam? Did they obey? No, they failed. And they lost the promise of life with God in the garden. They were removed from Eden. The Old Testament has some, received some harsh accusations of being strictly about law, about works. However, was the Old Testament purely law and works? No. Grace ran all throughout it. Immediately after the fall of Adam, they received a promise of a Savior. Genesis 3.15, grace. Abraham's father and grandfather, they worshipped idols, but God still chose Abraham. Joshua 24.2, grace. Abraham, he was justified by faith prior to any work that he done prior to any work of circumcision grace genesis 15 6 why was israel chosen why did god choose the nation of israel of all these other nations was it because of their works was it because of their morals was it because of their size no grace deuteronomy 7 7 it was totally of god's grace why then if grace is present then why also the law of Moses. Why all these different covenants of works? Why did God give Israel the law? Why did He keep putting before the people, do this and live, knowing while they never could? Deuteronomy chapters 29 through 31. Because He wanted the people to say, I can't, Lord. We can't fulfill these demands of righteousness. We keep failing. We don't deserve your blessings. We can't. We need your help, God. That's the point of the law. That's the point. It's to show us that we need God's help. That we need God to be God and to exemplify His infinite display of grace. The law of Moses was never designed for salvation, but was designed to show our need for a Savior. Galatians 3.24 So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law, the works, was but a shadow. And Jesus 
is the substance. And if we read the Old Testament without the lens of Christ, we could easily think that there was a time when people were expected to achieve righteousness through works. That's never been the case. We've always needed a Savior without exception. Unfortunately, though, how quick are we to embrace works rather than grace? You sin. What's your immediate reaction? What's your thought after you sin? After the sin is committed, you begin to walk around almost a little guarded, waiting for God to punish you. You're waiting for some bad event happen so that your sin that you did, you know was wrong, will be atoned for and made right. Then once something bad happens to you, you say, oh, I finally got my payback from that sin I committed. That's works. That's not grace. You sin. How do you atone for that sin when you commit that wrong? Do you begin to seek penance in, a, in like fashions of heightening of your prayer life? Reading massive amounts of scriptures and other sanctified actions? That's works. That's not grace. Hear me carefully. I'm not saying reading the scriptures and praying are wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if that if you take the means of grace, scriptures, prayer, sermons, confession, communion, and you use them as the source of grace, as a bargaining power to God for grace, then you have abused those resources of grace by turning them into works. It's essentially saying us, it's essentially us saying, Lord, look at me. Now forgive me. You see my actions? You see what I am doing? I deserve penance. That's works. That's not grace. We do not depend on the means of grace as the source of grace, but we go directly to the one who dispenses grace. That's Jesus Christ. We are free. We are free from the bonds and the burdens of a works-based righteousness. So don't keep going back. Instead, experience the fullness of grace that is offered to us by Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has taken away our sins. Run not to your works, but run to Christ. Flee to the cross where all your sins have been atoned. Past, present, future. Instead of our works, born-again Christians say, Father, I've sinned. Forgive me. Not because I deserve it, Lord. Forgive me because you are abounding in grace. Steadfast love. Forgive me because you are kind. Forgive me because you delight to show mercy. Forgive me because you are God. Because you and you alone forgive me. That's grace. We flee works. Give me more of you, God. Give me more of your truth. Give me more of your strength so I don't fall again into sin's snare. Grace. 
We should not think of our Heavenly Father as a revengeful God, one waiting to punish us after each one of our sins, but as our God whose throne we can approach again and again and again and again and again ad infinitum, receiving comfort, receiving love, receiving hope, because our sins are forgiven. Embrace the grace. And if you're in this room and you don't believe in Jesus, then you're living a life committed to works. Our world calls this many other things this day, karma, manifestations, reap what you sow, all of them equal to this mentality of do this and you will get works. That's exhausting. Embrace grace. I plead with you to seek out God. Say, God, because you are God, open my eyes to see you. Because you are good and gracious, forgive me. Give me life. Free me, Lord, from my blindness so that I can see the riches of your glorious grace. Lord, help me to know that you died for my sins and I can be free. In summary, we can see from this parable that Jesus has come to make all things clear. And we can enjoy the scriptures We can enjoy the depths of His grace, and we can live in grace. Let me pray. Lord, thank You for grace. Thank You, Lord, that You died for our sins, not because of anything we deserved. You simply died because You are love. And Lord, You now use us. You comfort us. You come to our aid in every moment at the ready. Lord, help us to depend on you more. Help us to enjoy your word more. May we celebrate your gospel every moment of every day. Lord, send us forth this week in light of your grace, bringing your gospel to our lives, ourselves, daily, and to those around us. Amen.